This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find them. One of Sydney's best catering companies have turned to home delivery in the greater Sydney area. Go and find them. Why would you bother trying to cook? We've got family friends coming over this weekend. We don't want to cook. Bella Catering is where we're going. Order some extras. Have some leftovers in your fridge. Very easy for you to do. Bellacatering.com.au I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. It's a fucking crazy year and it continues to be more and more crazy. And I think emphatically I can say um, that everyone's having a 2020. So if you're listening and you've been following along, oh my God, we deeply appreciate you over here at One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this show, to Josie and the Podcasts, to Miami Nice, to of course Increment Vice, which is edging towards a finale. Thank you so much. We have great guests coming up for you on this show this week. All of them returning for a massive week to engage with what's been happening in the world. Let's get to it. You just honest. don't want to listen, Jake. You just I don't want you to answer listen. the question. You j- I am answering your question. You just don't like the answer. The answer is in February, all the way through the middle of March, when the World Health Organization finally said there was a pandemic and China was hiding the information. Finally, that's when we knew that there was a pandemic. And you know what, Jake? We were at that point prepared for the worst. In February, we were moving mountains on PPE, therapeutics, testings, and vaccines so that in the time that we needed those things, we got those things. And and it's a miracle what we've been doing on vaccine development. We have a possibility of getting a vaccine by the end of the year. And I put that right in a memo on February 9th under the advice of the president in terms of, of getting on this situation because yeah. it might be serious. You can't have it both ways, Jake. You, you simply I'm can't. I'm not trying to have it both in ways. In February, I'm... nobody knew. No, nobody knew. Not the, the president. president. He's not February you, 7th. not Nancy Pelosi, not Bill de Blasio. He knew whether it was we, deadlier than the flu, expressed... and he was lying to the no. American people two weeks later. Jake, Jake you're cherry-picking. I'm not okay? cherry-picking. But you could say, look, uh, I think look, here uh, it all is. of this is asked and answered, Jake. Look, here's the thing. He was it's not like, honest with the American guys, people. That, that, you're not you're answering the question. You're not honest with the American people. CNN is not honest with the American okay. people. CNN, okay. you want to go there? I mean, I, CNN, I said you're not answering the question. That. Here's, here's the thing. Thank you, Peter question. Navarro. Thank, we just played tape. You didn't, answer, you didn't answer the question. Answered, no, you can't say that. You didn't I answer the question. question. No, you repeatedly, didn't. Jake. You just didn't okay. like the Peter answer. Navarro, thank you, you so much. Like I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And I would just like to remind the American people watching that... The United States has less than 5% of the world's population, and the United States has more than 20% of the world's coronavirus deaths. That is a fact. It does not. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Um, uh, joining me today, this week is, has been a week of really like a murderer's row of incredible individuals who I've been able to speak to throughout this process. And as part of it and ramping up to the 100th episode of this series, uh, I've demanded that they come back. The man I'm talking to today is someone I had such a joy talking to. I think it was one of the defining conversations that we had in, in the entire series. And what was great about it is that when a whole bunch of stuff in this insane news year started to happen around 
a president who is sitting having 18 one-hour interviews with the incredible real-life Bob Woodward and the revelations that are literally, and people starting to line them up and, and, and correspond with what he was saying live in the media and what was happening. I, I just thought I was hearing so much stuff and so much noise and so much nonsense that I felt like, you know what, I might actually talk to someone who has an idea of what the hell is going on. So it's with my great pleasure to talk to an Uber movie fan, sometimes actually giving some of the best film tweets than uh, even people on film Twitter, um, and the national correspondent for politics for Reuters, my friend, James Oliphant. James, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Blake, it is great to be back. Uh, I'm really happy to be back, and thank you for the really kind remarks that are they're almost completely undeserved. Uh, <laughs> almost, almost, almost. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, I, I just, there was so many people that sort of, you know, just, just to let, set the scene if people don't, you know, or are listening to this later. As we're talking, in Australia, it's the 16th of September. About a week ago now, or about maybe five, six days ago, actually, story broke that Bob Woodward's latest book, um, his first one about the Trump administration, Fear, dropped a little bit after Fire and Fury. It was kind of in the line of some other books at the same time that it dropped around. So it was sort of occupying the discourse of the madness and the disorganization and the egos of the Trump uh, administration. Um, his latest book, Rage, had been on the cards and for the longest time had been talking about um, really underscoring and, and showing never before seen access to the correspondence between um, President Donald Trump and uh, 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 Kim Jong-un, um, the leader of North Korea. And so that was what was kind of the expectation that was going to come up. There was going to be some news breaking out of it. But in amongst that... Um, revelations about what access he was given just all started to happen. 18 one hour interviews with the sitting president. He comes in and as that happens, people start to hear the interviews and excerpts of the interviews that actually articulate in like smoking gun kind of territory that this president who said this virus wasn't deadly, knew it was deadly well before he, he, he even acknowledged that it was a serious thing had plenty of time to mobilize the arms of the American administration to, to protect themselves against it. And one of the strange things that happened, and it happened on the, uh, the sort of right side of the political spectrum all the way to Fox, which was that people started to say, who tricked Trump into having 81-hour interviews with him? Um, there was also a bit of discourse around, uh, well, he knew it was deadly, but he was trying to act strong. And it's like, well, if you listen to the tapes and you listen to what he actually said, that's, there's not really a corollary between those two thoughts. It's real. It's a long boat to stretch. But on the left, as the left does, it starts to eat itself and say, how dare Bob would get this revelation at the time that he got it. And I, my immediate gut feel reaction, and this is just someone who is a, let's, let me call, let me call myself a fringe entertainment journalist, shall we say? Um, I've even had to sign embargoes to see movies, right? Or to interview someone to interview, you know, to, you have to sign an NDA that you're going to watch a version of a movie and you can't ever talk about that version of the movie before you go and host a Q and a with a director about said movie. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that someone who is writing a book about the white house and is talking to the president would have some form of that. So in my mind, I was like, well, look, who knows what deal was struck for him to have the access that he was gained, but, revealing it all now and coming out there even before the book comes out, I didn't find myself attacking the great Bob Wilbert about it. In fact, I was like, can we be thankful that 
Trump is so stupid that he sat down with Bob Woodward, one of the greatest investigative journalists, one of the most, the greatest miners of information that has ever lived in the political (laughs) journalistic sphere for that long to mine all this information for us to now go through. And I, and I immediately contacted James and I said, can you please come on the show? And can we please talk about this? Because I feel like you're going to be the guy to talk about it. And then of course we'll go through the minute, but it feels like right now, this is uh, this is the time. This is the, this is what we have to discuss. So my friend, can you yeah, help me? And, uh, can and you help certainly me? here in Washington, this has been the topic. Yeah. What do you need? Oh, no, sorry, sorry. Oh, I, yeah, think, yeah, I think we've yeah, got a slight sorry. delay. You know, please, you, you explain. A <laughs> little bit of a dark side of the moon thing here. Um, yes, here in Washington, this has been, even with the wildfires in California and COVID and Trump being Trump, the number one topic since the revelations came out. And, um, you know, it's, it's really been interesting to see the reaction, as you said, on both sides, uh, and particularly from the left. Um, when you call yourself an entertainment reporter on the fringe, I don't know if that means you're of the fringe or on the fringe. But, <laughs> uh, either way, you know, um, and, and I get it on a lot of levels and, and particularly right now at this point of time, like where we are in our culture, where there is just such a suspicion and cynicism toward institutionalized anything. And that includes the media, yes. as we well know. Um, you know, everybody thinks that Trump bashing or that media bashing, excuse me, started with Trump. And that of course is not the case. And one of the, we'll visit that later in the movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and that, you know, plenty of people on the left are just as suspicious of institutional media yes. as people on the right. And, um, and so you did hear a lot of the stuff of like, how could Bob Woodward sit on this information? Didn't he have a moral responsibility to come forward? Um, and, and a lot of the defenses, you know, t- in respect of that point, sounded very institutional, where other journalists are like, well, that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah. And, um, and that is sometimes the failing of our, our, of our industry, that we're not as transparent as we could be. And we sort of fall back and protect each other. Um, some, of the time, <laughs> some of the time it's because we're scared for our jobs. Uh, but yeah. uh, uh, also it's that it's just, you know, there are practices within the industry that are widely recognized and taken as commonplace that to outsiders look um, almost corrupt. Yeah. And, um, and this is certainly a situation where Bob Woodward sat on a piece of information that was incredibly relevant to a crisis that was sweeping the world and kept quiet. And so, you know, from my perspective, uh, I think these are questions that need to be asked. And, yeah. um, uh, and and I think, you know, it really was, in a way, it's a cost-benefit analysis. And I think the way that you phrased it was really, really perfect in that, wouldn't we rather have the product? Because I think, I think the, the choice was not, Bob Woodward could have revealed this in February and then written his book. The choice was revealing this and no book, if you know what I mean. Yes. If this would have ruined the book. There would have been no book. There would have been no more interviews. Yeah, what, one interview, like if this is on the 18th of February and it's the 1st of 18, that's one interview done. Or it's yeah, like, and, and there is now more revelations, more emphatic evidence 
to the contra- like that contradict a lot of the Trump administration's rhetoric around their response to the virus in in the states, which is like, oh, we knew it; it was getting worse; it was getting worse. And like, and there was one that I even saw this morning around um, someone had, and this is the beauty of the internet. Someone had like literally gotten a, a, an excerpt from a press conference on the same day, and then and then offset it with an interview and showed just how stark like in front of the public, no, this is not deadly. No, we're not worried about it. No, it's fine. And then literally to Woodward behind the scenes. No, this is deadly. No, Bob, you, you don't understand, Bob. This is really deadly. And, and like, it was only think of like a 52 second clip, but I, I remember just going, wow, like that's, that is a product of these 18 interviews that are there. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think there's a legitimate line of inquiry, as I said, to Woodward being faced with that choice and saying, okay, well, I'm gonna torpedo my project and tell the world uh, that the president is lying Mm. to the American public about the virus and misrepresenting its effects. And, um, you know, I've seen the criticism online and in Twitter, and I think people, there are people who are very uh, wielded to that that viewpoint, where it's like you, you know, you've sacrificed a lot to publish a book. Yes. Um, You know, the journalist defense is, he made a deal, uh, not only with Trump, but with everybody he interviewed, that he would not use this material until publication. Yeah. And that's a deal he has made through his entire career. Um, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this when you asked me to come on the show, but like, uh, you know, I think the title of this podcast should be, you know, what, have, <laughs> what all the president's men have wrought. Yes. And I think we're seeing that, right? You know, I mean, this is sort of, this is sort of a, the epilogue in a way. It's like, um, okay, it made Bob Woodward a celebrity, a journalistic celebrity. And he has used that celebrity for 30 years or uh, to meet with presidents and get unparalleled access uh, to the Oval Office and to uh, scores of administration officials, gotten wealthy off of it. Um, become uh, a leading chronicle of our time, chronicler, excuse me, of our time. Um, and so Bob Woodward goes into a project, makes his promises. Everyone knows what the deal is. And, you know, Trump, as you noted, would not have agreed to 18 interviews with him if he felt like in the middle of it, uh, Woodward was going to pull the pin. I mean, part of what's interesting, too, if you read the accounts of this, is that Trump, in his own way, you know, he was trying to influence Woodward's, the outcome of the project. Yes. You know, so he was trying to sweet talk him. He was trying to impress him, like with the Kim Jong, Jong-un stuff and say, yeah, you know, I'm probably going to get screwed. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to win you over. Um, and so that was all part, that was all part of Woodward's process. And so for Woodward to abandon that process is basically not only pulling the plug on the book, but from his standpoint, pulling the plug on the rest of his career. Yeah, uh, because who would ever trust him ever again? Uh, whether it's you know Joe Biden or Trump or whoever the next president is down the line, and so uh, from that standpoint, uh, you know, you, if you weigh the cost and benefit in terms of that, and um, then you can understand his decision. Uh, you know, frankly, what I think is actually one of the more problematic aspects of this is um, is uh, Woodward's affiliation with the Washington Post. Yeah. You know, it, and uh, if he had resigned from the post years ago and said, I'm going to pursue my career as, as a celebrity journalist, write these, you know, tell all books, 
I think he would be in a little bit of a different space than still being associated with the newspaper. Be- because there's not the inclination that this movie spells out, which is on February 18, after that interview, he's contacting the editorial leaders of the Washington Post saying, I have something. I have something that no one else has. And they are right. literally from that moment preparing. Um, it's much, you know, we've seen it exhibited in other movies around, you know, the Citizen Four, whether it's the Snowden documentary about, you know, these massive media organizations around the world, like trying to unpack uh, huge uh, revelatory information and like try and build stories out of it and stories on stories and follow-ups on follow-ups and go down the rabbit holes to find out all this information. And yeah, it does make it more problematic. It's, it's, it's really challenging. And, and the other thing that, you know, I, I love that we can have like a discourse about it and not necessarily get to an answer. I think that that's important. I think that but one thing I would say also is what it does, and this is why I kind of tend to, to lean on Woodward. It's not about the project. It's just about any person who has been consuming news, especially such as you and I, and you actually writing it and being a part of developing it and, 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 and along the way from February, Almost every media outlet, save for like the Fox and the far right and the fringe, you know, you know, fringe uh, journalists um, have all said Trump is denying the severity of this. Look how. And the evidence is pointed to he's the president of the United States. He's getting the briefings, even Biden and and um, uh, um, uh, like. Biden saying, oh, look, it's Trump stripping this away. And Elizabeth Warren saying we should have a plan for coronavirus. And it's like, this was manifesting all around the world. And a lot of people were going and pushing, 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 pushing to say, no, that this administration is not taking this seriously. And I think regardless, if you take, you know, it's hard for us now to distance ourselves, but if you take the Woodward revelations out, that has been the discourse around the coronavirus since it made its way into the United States. America's response has not been strong enough, has not been consistent enough, has not whatever the case may be. And, and the, the administration itself is like pushing things back to a level, you know, pushing back on things um, to a level and denying it and just hoping this thing will go away and saying that it's not serious. So in my mind, it's like this, if you had the confirmation bias of, of course, Bob Woodward, of, of course, in the year 2020, it's going to be so ironic that freaking Bob Woodward gets the scoop that Trump is doing this bad thing. And so the confirmation bias for people on the left-hand side of the spectrum is like, of course he knew about it. Like that's what's going to happen. And here it is. And so therefore the reaction is like, why didn't we know sooner? This should have been a smoking gun. And on the right, it's like, well, of course Trump would want to act strong. And so it's this weird thing. It's like now in this nexus, it's the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that Trump knew about it and didn't do enough about it, which we already kind of knew, but this is like emphatic, but now it's stuck in this like washing cycle of a discourse going like, what, what is it? What is it at the end? And I feel like it's like the fact of the matter is he knew it was worse than it is. He said it to a reporter. We have it on record. We're going to have it for decades to come. And that, that should influence people's minds when they're thinking about voting in the upcoming election, basically that, this guy knew about it. He didn't do enough to do it. Didn't do enough to stop it. And now America is being impacted by it. Well, right, Blake. And I think in that vein, it's in line with um, that story just right before the Woodward uh, debacle um, about from the Atlantic about uh, Trump disrespecting uh, uh, dead veterans and yes. all the you know 
All the fallout from that was, which was the last soap opera before this one, that was going to completely upend the election, and it hasn't. But and we'll get into that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so taken together, these are reasons for people to either vote or not vote for Trump or or whatever. But you know, um, and I think, I think the timing of the Woodward book actually was geared toward that. There's no coincidence that these revelations are coming out in September of 2020. Uh, I'm sure that was always the target date for the book, right? So mm-hmm. um, we, we, in, this, we in the movie writing business go when we see a movie drop in October as opposed to drop in June, we go, ah, Oscar, Oscar right. babe. Or like December 24th. Right? Yeah, December 24th. yeah, yeah, real yeah. close. Yes, right. Uh, oh, that's, yeah, like that, oh, that biography of uh, <laughs> coming out of December 24th. Doesn't sound like a Christmas movie, but um uh, I didn't have a good joke though. I was going to say Tesla. That's what it's um, no, but Tesla's but, a good uh, joke because they're like, this isn't going to win anything. Let's just release yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> With the ad wizard. Anyway, um, so no, I get to getting to my original point, which is I will say this because there's been such a flood of information about the virus, and I'm not a, an, a, an expert on the spread of the virus by any means. I haven't written about it really that much especially outside of its political context. But we have forgotten a little bit here in September how much of a debate there was going on in those early weeks about how you get the virus. Yes. And there, you know, is it airborne? Is it by touch? Do people have to cough on you? Do you know, do you get it from food? I mean, in other words, there was so much confusion about how, you know, and there was such an emphasis on not touching things and um, and a great debate was whether how how virulent was it through the air, and um, and I will say that had President Trump come out in February and March and said, "Listen, this thing travels through the air. You can get it very easily by breathing it in, or by breathing it on other people, especially indoors. You should wear a mask." Um, Instead, you know, that was not a message that came out for a very, very long time. The administration has since gone back and forth on it. And who knows? I mean, I think that really would have I been contributed. Even, even in Australia, James, we didn't have, you know, there was what was frustrating as a news consumer in Australia was the changing environment. So obviously there's this kind of two sides of the spectrum here. It's like that really early on, it was like, Oh, can you get it on surfaces? Can you, yeah. How long can you get it on surfaces? When people were talking about the government was mandating pandemic cleans in offices and things like that to make sure things are clean. How long does the virus survive? There's all that discourse, but just thinking in the most simple terms of like, this is an airborne virus. If everyone just wear, if everyone, uses hand sanitizers or wears gloves. If everyone wears gloves and uses a mask and, or if they don't use gloves, they wash and sanitize their hands regularly, even more frequently. We do pandemic cleans. We use antibacterial wipes on things and just everyone does it. We're just going to do it for a month in the country just to, just to help stem the flow of this thing potentially, because right now this is what we know and it might change because obviously we're in a moving environment, but I just like everyone in America to do this. And what's going to happen is in every state, we're going to have a, free mask collection points that you can go and get it. And if that had done that, just forget, I don't forgetting political affiliation here, just going, if a president of the United States, regardless of who it was said that 
that would echo and reverberate around the world. If there are countries that are on the fence because of the, the place that they have in the world, this st- that stems the discourse. It basically goes, look, the United States are doing it. We want to be shown to be doing the right thing as well. And most countries would have basically followed suit. But because there was that argument that then becomes like, you know, oh, well, New Zealand are doing really great. And then someone goes, well, oh, they're not America. You know, they're not the size of America or something. And then it becomes, it's like, and, and the story I keep telling, I can't remember what day it was, James, but there was a day where there was some in this, in this absolute avalanche of political stories of this year, where there was some new news story that was going to, you know, just, you know, dismantle the Trump presidency or whatever that came through some revelation. And on the same day, like very low, low priority was videos because New Zealand had no more live COVID cases and people were going back and watching rugby in stadiums. And if you're, you know, an Aussie or you're a Kiwi or you're a South African or a Brit rugby union, you know, which is an, you know, an international game has its own world cup, et cetera. New Zealanders are feverish fans of rugby and watching stadiums full of 30,000 people hugging and crying and enjoying their national sport together. I'm like, you know, I don't give a shit about all this talking. Look at what happens when they just cared. They just went to the extremes and now everyone's in stadiums again. (laughs) There's comedy shows, there's movies, like every people are making James Cameron's making the avatars, you know, like things are happening. It's like that extremity, they now live their life normally. Like they might've had, you know, they've had a couple of little tiny bursts of, you know, people coming back from the other countries and, and then, it, and, it, and getting through quarantine and, and not working, breaking through a quarantine and that, and that affecting people, but it's microscopic. And so at the end of it, it's like, I just go, look, I don't care about any discourse you're saying. If you could say, Blake, your option is to be in a stadium, hugging people, screaming, crying, watching a national sport, having a great time or being locked in your house for the, the now the sixth of like seven months or potential, it'd be like, no, I want to do the stadium thing. I'd much rather be the guy that's in the stadium than the guy that's not. So it just feels like, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, 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 but it's also this year makes it almost impossible to chart that, that dialogue because too, too much has happened since then. Like it feels like a decade yeah, ago. And I, and I could have gone and seen Tenet and uh, <laughs> said something bad about it on Twitter and then be attacked. <laughs> and I completely lost out on that experience. So, you know, damn you for costing me <laughs> being attacked on Twitter about Chris Nolan. Um, but yeah, I, and I will say this just to put a, 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 a cap on it. Um, ultimately, you can debate about what Bob Woodward did or didn't do and what, he, what ethically he should have done. But the bottom line still is with Trump and what he knew and what he was being told by his advisors and, uh, and then what he was telling the American public. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we will judge him uh, for what he, for his actions or non-actions and his decisions, um, because, you know, he didn't do something or not do something because he was talking to Bob Woodward. Yes. And, um, you know, and so here, you know, in, in November, in less than two months, the American public is gonna have the opportunity to weigh in on his conduct and all of our polls here show that is still his handling of the virus is still the most significant factor in in uh, in how swing voters and you know people who are not MAGA people uh, view him. Yes. So he has he has suffered a political prize for his behavior. And, and also the you know that like you said 
um, and we can touch on it after we watch the clip because I think the clip is great. Um, but but also the the revelations in the Atlantic. You know, I, I talked to, to a few of the guests in over the last couple of episodes about um, Trump's view of the military. And you know, I, there's a comedian Tim Dillon who I've quoted a few times who I thought had a really funny take. He's like, "Do you think that a, 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 an heir, a heir to a fortune would ever understand a calling? Like, would you ever uh, would you ever think that he would understand? You know, we need policemen." We need military people. He's like, but there's a calling to want to protect your community and be a beat cop or to protect your nation. And he's like, even something as stupid as a calling to be a comedian. He's like, you know, if you put that on paper and said for the next decade, you're going to sleep on couches. You're going to be broke as hell. You're going to stay all around the country. You you know, you, you don't know where your bills are going to be paid one day or another. Then after a decade, maybe you figured this thing out and hopefully you can market and monetize yourself to be, it's like Trump doesn't understand that. Like, of course he's going to think that people who don't immediately make a decision that is to give them the most money. Um, it, you know? And so he's like, he's like, this is where, where he was attacking. Cause he was like, I'm attacking the people who thought that he didn't have this opinion in the first place. Like Republicans are going, Oh my God, he loves the military. It's like, guys, he said all this stuff about McCain on the campaign trail. He said all this stuff about other Republicans. It's not a surprise. And to your your point, I I think, no. And I think in fact, it, it, it's not a surprise to anybody who has been paying any attention for years. Uh, you know, to your point about whether, you know, wealthy people can ha- have a sense of self-sacrifice. I mean, we do, we see it with all sorts of other people. Um, you know, I'm just mindful since this is a film podcast of, you know, the actors like James Stewart, who, you know, volunteered for duty in oh, yeah. World War II and, you know, left behind our athletes of the time, uh, Ted Williams and people like that who signed up for World War II and um, abandoned everything, not knowing. Um you know, uh, I think I just read something about Glenn Ford, where he came back to Hollywood thinking he'd never work again. Yes. Um, after you know he was in World War II and that his career was over, and um, and so it, it is. It, it's a very, very Trumpian thing to not to see the world as transactional, but it does get to. I mean, all of this, you know, the the military story and the Woodward story and COVID. It does get into really what what is at the heart of this election, and that is, uh, and I think probably outsiders—not that you're an outsider—but I mean anybody that is not um, haven't have had to live with this on a daily basis for the last five years uh, might not recognize. And that is, so much of this election has nothing to do with any particular issue or economic condition or the state of the country or it, it it's it's almost almost cultural in every respect and yeah. people are picking one side or another and uh it's almost like it's a sports team and um yankees red sox or something like that where uh it almost doesn't matter if you're on trump's team what he does and says and if you're against him there's no way he's going to you're ever he's ever going to convince anybody that he's done anything right uh and and so and we go into november now with this sort of uh, things are very much in stasis, like his popularity, it's taken a little bit of a dip, but we're seeing it sort of reassert itself again, because he has a floor. He has a statistical floor. Yeah. He's never gone into the 30s. He doesn't go into like the 30% mode. He doesn't get above 44, 45%. He stays in this little, little narrow area, narrow band <laughs> of popularity. 
um, and to sort of rises and falls through that. And that has been true through impeachment, the Mueller investigation, you know, any outrageous thing he said, you know, North Korea, China, um, it's, it's never wavered. And so, and, and what that tells me is, is it really like external conditions, as amazing as that sounds for a country that is going through so much right now to say, well, in the end, it doesn't really matter all that much. <laughs> that, we're in a, that we're in a recession and half the country's on fire and, you know, uh, kids are out of school. And I mean, it's, it, the scenario seems ridiculous. Yes. You suggest that. But I, I, unfortunately, I think it's true. It's a, it's an unbelievable time. It's like, I, 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 that's what I, I think I, I can't even remember, but just charting how this is all going to play out and, and a legacy of a president. I don't, I don't think I've ever, you know, I, I, I relish. And I think even in Australia, we've talked about it and we used to talk about it in Australia in the context of there was a lot of internal party fighting that caused uh, leadership spills, which would mean that internally in the party, even though we'd elected a party to, to lead us, unlike America, where you elect a president, you can, there can be an internal leadership spill where people like actually topple the leader internally in their party and nominate a new one because they don't feel like they're doing it. And so for many years in Australia, we had all these sitting prime ministers who would get spilled out of things. And like, you know, there was a time where we just relished like, look, I don't agree with John Howard. I think he was, you know, a deplorable human being when it comes to some of his, you know, um, humanitarian um, uh, outlook. Uh, but, you know, some of his other things are amazing as far as his gun, his stance on guns and things like that. But it was nice to be bored. It was really nice to just be like, I don't care. Yeah, fine. They're just like, things are moving politically. It's fine. The, the most exciting thing that happened with our prime minister in one day is like, he's walking down the street wearing an Australian tracksuit, speed walking. And it's like, that's as exciting as I want it to be right now. I think everyone wants that, right? Like, you know, we want to see Obama shooting hoops again, you know, like just something boring. You want to see Bill Clinton on a saxophone. Like, you know, it doesn't, you know, George Bush tinkering with the idea of painting, you know, like, you know, all the boring, most, you want a president to be elected and then you just want to see Joe Biden do loops in his, you know, in his, in his, you know, Jaguar or whatever that muscle car he drives. Oh, yeah, the Corvette. Sorry, you want to see him ride around in the Corvette and just you know do loops of the. Of course, to be American. Sorry, um, Jaguar is a Brit car. Um, but you know, yeah, uh, you want to see him drive the Corvette and just have a you know get get things under control and then watch policy happen and you know the machines of politics continue to serve the people instead of this constant battle. But you made a you know <clears throat> before we even have gotten to the minute, I think this is one of the all timer episodes as as far as a dialogue that this movie inspires continues to spy uh, continues to inspire and what all the president's men hath wrought will definitely be in the blurb so let's uh roll up to the white house we're at the 97th minute of this movie if you're looking at it on your movie uh looking at it for yourself on like hbo max or some other streaming service that you have or if it's on your dvd or blu-ray it is one hour and 36 minutes on your dial james and i are going to watch it now you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it Mitchell denied any such involvement and called the story ludicrous. 
The new charge also brought a response from Vice President Agnew at a stop in Tampa. I have full confidence in Mr. Mitchell uh, and in the people in the Republican organization. And uh, I think that uh, that kind of unattributed report at a time like this is uh, counterproductive. We must bear in mind that uh, those who published it uh, have already shown their sympathy for the other ticket. Abandoned. That could be a news story that happened today, just with different people. <laughs> like, <laughs> they've already shown their sympathy. It's a ludicrous story. It's all non-denial denials. Bless, bless their hearts. And a perfect minute for us to discuss because here we are. Well, I love it. And of course, seeing the newspapers delivered just makes my heart flutter a little bit. Oh, um, same. You no, know, just the idea of a front page landing on a doorstep and people reading it and, uh, you know, um, if you just beg my indulgence, I still think a newspaper is the, the most efficient presentation uh, format for presentation of news ever created. And it's just a shame that they, you know, they're in such bad shape as a, as a physical format, just because, man, everything you need to know is just right there and, and, and it progresses from there. And it's just, it's an, it was an, an amazingly impactful. Uh, oh, it's James, James, it would be, a, you know, it, I, I arrived on the scene doing film criticism uh, in more of a broadcast sense, but the dream is always to write for a publication that has a print. You know, you, you, you know, I, I, I even got to write for the Australian Playboy. I wrote a, a couple of reviews and pieces, and I remember like, um, uh, what, like a really dear close family friend, a, a, a lovely lady, mind you, coming out of a newsagent holding up a Playboy and sending me a couple of photos of like. She'd bought it so that we could, you know, have a physical, tangi you know, tangible copy. But a newspaper is like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's where the rubber hits the road. I think the only there's only one minor benefit of this chaos is that at the moment, with a lot of papers contracting and everything, and economically contracting at the moment, there's a lot of restructuring in a lot of corporate environments, and obviously that is rolling into newspapers because a lot, a lot of them are owned by big corporates these days. Um, but some of them have actually taken their mastheads and, and gone independent and turned like a daily paper into a weekly and been able to, you know, survive on subscription so that they can still be that physical, tangible thing. But I agree, even a weekly paper where stories that are relevant to an area are like curated for those inches and, and, and prioritized and hierarchically delivered like that. It's like, there's nothing better than reading, you know, than a paper. There's nothing better. It's actually really great. It's, it's, and let me tell you something, it is one of the reasons why uh, we're so polarized, that there is, uh, you know, less agreement on a common set of facts than there's ever been. Yes. Because we don't, we don't have any sort of unifying media in terms of broadcast or print, you know, and, and local newspapers are in such dire shape that um, it really has left people to become, I mean, it, I, it sounds bad for me to suggest that people should not be active consumers and active pursuers of information but as we have seen that leads you down a lot of rabbit holes mm. uh on the web um with uh, all the conspiracy theories that are afoot and um the amount of misinformation uh in this election and so you know it, it, the, we're, we're losing our referees blake uh you know and you know and, I mean? and i agree it's it's you know i i subscribe to um 
I subscribe to the New York Times. I've subscribed to the LA Times. I subscribe, I think, to the Washington Post. And so I get the notifications and and I follow in, in our country, one of the most reliable news sources is our national broadcaster, the ABC News, because they just seem to be pretty, pretty down the line as far as like fact, you know, the crux of the facts. There's not a lot of like uh um, you know, spin on the ball, so to speak, when you're reading them, you kind of get your facts there. And so many people are like, they'll tell you something, they'll say, Oh, did you see this in the news? And I'm like, Where did you read that? Yeah. Like that's one of my first questions. Where did you read that? Or where did you see that? Like I saw it on Facebook. What what publication was it from? Oh, I can't remember. We'll find that. There's like, I didn't see that on the ABC today, or I didn't read that in the Times, and I oh, I didn't read. You know, like it feels like there's. The, you know, I think that out, outside that there's so much room for opinion and you know discourse, and especially in, you know, especially in art. You know, when art criticism like that's you, you love the richness and diversity of thought like when you're entangling with art like as we do on this show so many different opinions entangle but like when i want to know what is happening in a news story i want to know what the facts are <laughs> i really don't give a rat's about the the craft of it until later you read like a you know a, a, um, a retroactive essay on like the impacts of certain things or you read a book like all the president's men which narrativizes a period of news stories that tells you a story of how things unfolded but yeah it just feels like um you know I, so I'm many people. Happy, uh, I'm very happy to work for Reuters right now, frankly, because I, yeah. I think we have a lot of integrity and international credibility, and um, the credibility is now is now currency. Yes. In, in our world, you know, and uh, it's harder and harder to have it uh, with with a wide amount of readers who um, who tend to think you're on one side or the other, and that's what makes this. This clip uh, from uh, from the movie so terrific because you know we do have Agnew suggesting as the Trump the Trump campaign and the Trump administration suggest every day of their existence that the media is on the side of the Democrats and uh, and so even then back you know in '72 you have the Nixon administration complaining that the media is out to get them and they're victims and this is all just one big they're ganging up on them as one big conspiracy and there's nothing to see here and so yeah see it's the oldest it's the oldest political rule in the book right which is don't attack the message attack the messenger and uh and you know i think i think i think nixon has a lot to do with uh you know the quality of our discourse involving the media today yeah it's and it's also just it's actually scary james because i was watching this scene in preparation and I'm like, I'm, I'm cataloging. There's a few more minutes to go. Some wonderful guests such as yourself. And I'm like, all right, leading up to a hundred, I'm just familiarizing myself with the minutes. I'm like, I want James back on the show. And I see this minute and I'm like, you, I have literally seen Pence be rolled out to do this exact thing. Like a, a public deflection of a level of authority hitting talking points like in his ceremonial position largely as a vice president obviously he's no cheney right he's not like a puppet master he's he's a guy who's in that traditionally ceremonial position of like you know uh, uh, having the, the executive office be around um places but that that this moment i'm watching and i'm like i i i want to go and look at clips where pence has been asked you know getting onto the tarmac at some place going, Oh no, we, we have this in hand and da, 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 just repeating talking points. And it's like Spiro Agnew could be Pence. He could be any number of people ever. And um, there's no direct contention with the facts other than, Oh, it's ridiculous. And 
that seems to be the same discourse of like, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would that happen? Or why wouldn't they do more or blah, blah, blah. It always seems to be like, that's ridiculous. And I feel like that the Fox News propagandized arm of the news media right now, they, they take that ridiculous thing and that's what they spend five hours talking about. Like they spend, they expand one comment of it's ridiculous and then spout a whole bunch of theories and weirdness and never address the fact of the matter of like multiple sources, yeah. anonymous, within those departments, yeah. name these people. Well, yeah. And, you, and if you think about the, uh, the scene directly before this one where um, Bernstein gets Mitchell on the phone, and wakes him up and lets you know what time of the day it is, which still cracks me up every time, whether it's morning or evening. I always wonder if he was sedated or something. I don't know if that was a part of the story or not. But I just love hearing uh, him for the first time, James, because it's yeah. like you've heard. If you could get John Mitchell, that would be wonderful. Like he's and and you know now knowing in the history of like Martha Mitchell and all that lunacy that happens, and there's all this stuff that is on the fringes of this story that they can't even touch on because of how it'll take you down a rabbit hole. But when you hear his voice and he's like "hello" and you're like "oh, this is Mitchell." Great. I love it. And I, and I also love how profane he is right oh. out of the shoe. All the Nixon <laughs> people were like that. Like that was one of the great, I mean, we're getting a feel, but like that was another thing when you talk about, you know, reflections of, of Watergate and that was, you know, the American public didn't know a president and his, and his staff could be so profane and be so uh, sacrilegious and, 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 base and, you know, just to have Mitchell just pop out like that, like you said, his first his first words in the movie. What does he does? He threatens Catherine Graham. You know, he it, it's it's not about oh how could you make these allegations? They're ridiculous. It's like oh if you go ahead and publish this, you guys really have a great game going here. You know, <laughs> there's no engagement on the facts. There's no. no like well how do you you know what? There's not even a, an inquiry into the facts. But, and it's, it's straight all, to aggression. And oh, right. we're gonna write a story about you, and it's like that is the thing. That is exactly it. Like, like whoa, we're gonna write a story about you. And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, um, I, 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 it's I, I love that. I just I, I, I love that as a position. I love, I love the you know I, I in the last few episodes, it was talking to a few people about how how right out on Front Street, there's those journalistic dirty tricks. You know, I spoke to a, a comedian. Cam James from Australia is like, I love the manipulation of Hoffman, like calling late at night, you know, the story's already in the cooker. Like he's actually doing a great trick there, which is like, if I call this guy and I catch him slightly off guard, I might get that candor that I've heard about. Like that rumored John Mitchell ball busting straight to the point. I'm going to attack you candor. If I call him late at night. I might get lucky and I get it. And he gets it. And it's like, Ooh, that's like a, it's so great from a journalistic perspective, but B to your point, it's like, that is exactly the reflexive reaction you would expect them to give in person to the thought of that but never to a journalist directly who's taking quotes from them. And so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's perfect. And uh, if you, you know, uh, there, there have been multiple episodes and suggestions during the Trump administration that the White House, this White House, has compiled dossiers on uh, journalists mm. or, you know, our allies of Trump have set out to try to ruin or embarrass um, journalists on social media. So when Mitchell says, we're going to write a story about you, this is going on now. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and so again, it just goes back to the original point, which is they created the playbook for going after the press and, you know, 
um, intimidation, you know, misinformation. I'll tell you, I looked up the original Washington Post uh, Bernstein, Woodward and Bernstein story, the Mitchell, yes. Mitchell story. And um, not only is Mitchell quoted in it, but the, uh, a spokesman for Creep, the Committee to Reelect, is also quoted in the story. And his, his quote is, your sources are bad. And this is a bunch of misinformation. So again, it was just like attack, attack the journalists, attack the process, attack the messenger, don't engage on the facts. <laughs> when I hear you say that, James, I think like, this is why people need to revisit this movie because it's like a kind of docudrama and a template. And this is, you know, that, you know, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. It's like some of the stuff that people are so shocked and affronted by that this is the, the Trump administration does in a contemporary sense. It's like this has been, you know, in the without that stupid, you know, but on both sides there are good people, whatever. Like that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that exactly as you articulate it, they made the playbook for going after the press in the Nixon administration because they had to. Until all the dominoes fall, then all those guys sat in front of Senate hearings, like and and had to, you know, and and for for their, um, really for like, uh, abridged sentences, and had to sit there and admit all the things that they'd done. Which is, you know, the the thing that you can actually hope at the end of the, the you know potential end of the Trump administration is that if people are actually held to account, their feet are held to the fire in front of a Senate hearing, where the outcome is, if you perjure yourself, you're going to jail, and you may even go to jail for the things that you've done already. Um, but you know, it's when all these things start to happen and this is like years later that people are like, Oh, the collective weight of all these stories actually have a meaning because at the end of it, it was all revealed. The sources were right. All these people eventually admitted their faults and came forward. And like, even in the hearings themselves, like they asked people and they thought that someone would take the plea, the fifth amendment. And then they just confessed to, to, you know, and, and so it's like, this is such a fascinating time because it's like all this same stuff's happening. And the big question mark is, will the country learn to sort of self-correct and, and create a cycle of like, we're not going to go through this anymore. And ultimately the Republican party then weaponized how to not allow this to happen again to a certain extent. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. And I, I'm, I, I'm endlessly fascinated with it. Yeah, you know, Blake, like one of the things that used to bug me the most, especially when Trump uh, first, in his first few years as president, were the people who would, you know, jump up and down on Twitter in all caps and say, this is not normal. This is not normal. And, and as if, you know, first of all, I, I don't know when our politics have ever been normal, but it also just, you know, and all, you know, I, I understand that the average age of people on Twitter is, is you know, it's, 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 it's not people like me. But um, it, it just didn't show any sort of recognition that there have always, there has always been manipulation in politics. There has always been uh, prevarication, or, you know, uh, misrepresentation. Yes. Uh, you know, so you, do you need Nixon? Do you need the example of Nixon? Do you need the example of Reagan and Iran Contra and Ed Meese being his crony attorney general? You know, do you need? Uh, George Bush in Iraq, like what, what's normal? Like what is normal for American <laughs> politics? I mean, that's what, you know, I mean, that's, there is no normal, there, there, you know, uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, like you, you pick whatever episode 
that you want. But, um, you know, our presidents don't operate like, like movie presidents do. They operate like real people with vices and, and egos. And I, I still think like one of the great takeaways from this movie, I can't remember if we talked about this last time, is that, you know, if you were to walk into this movie and it never ever, know, if you didn't know anything was going on, right? Um, I, I just love, I just love that so much of this happens and then Nixon in the middle of the film is reelected. Yes. And so, you know what I mean? So when we were talking about beginning, you know, about, okay, well, will the Atlantic story hurt Trump? Or, you know, will the Woodward book hurt Trump? Look, man, they just want to get, they just want to get, they just want to get reelected. They want to get, then they'll worry about the consequences. Yes. Um, you know, and, and that was so much of the mindset going on in 72. It was just like, okay, you know, we just, we just got to get the ball across the finish line. And, um, you know, the American public was just, they weren't tuned into this. And uh, I mean, I love that scene. I love all the scenes in the newsroom where, you know, you're watching Woodward and Bernstein do their, on their lonely pursuit while politics is happening all around them and the politics are all in Nixon's favor. And, and uh, you know? And it's and it's only now, you know, we're about to start seeing where they start pulling together the entire concept. And, you know, we we, we lead up to a great conversation with one of my favorite people in the world, Matt, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, um, which we called One Rat Fucking Minute, because it's basically talking about the concept of rat fucking and, and things like that with Deep Throat. Um, and, and just political political trickery, political sort of, uh, you know, ev all these evasive tactics and, and sending out wrong press releases on letterheads and all those sorts of things that kind of mess with people and fringe voters um, and, and people who don't, aren't able to discern fact from fiction in those sorts of instances. But that, that is such a colossal thing. It's like right in the middle of this movie, these guys are still writing stories, which they hope are hoping are going to have an impact. And it is, it, they are, they may as well just be little little kind of bumps in the road, you know, it's like a ship, you know, it's like those ships you see that travel into like the North pole or down into Antarctica, like those ships that seem to be like impervious to ice and they're just going through an ice <laughs> sheet. It's like nothing is stopping this ship. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep trudging along. It's not going to get, it's not going to get sunk. It's going to keep going. Um, and yeah, I just see that with this movie so much and so much with these scenes is that it, it's still, it's still going. He's still going to get reelected. It's still happening. And, and yeah, like I mean, said, uh, Deep, Deep Throat has to explain it because Woodward just never ever, you know, he's not a, he's, he's naive in a lot of ways about politics. And as the film notes, he's a Republican and, you know, he's just, they never, it was very hard for them to see the grand scheme until, you know, Holbrook at the end is like, you know, they, they wanted to run against McGovern. Don't you understand what they wanted to do? They, you know, they took down everybody in the way. This is the result they wanted and they got what they wanted. Everybody was in on it. It's like, and, um, you know, I mean, that's where this movie is like Chinatown or something like it only it like the full scope of the conspiracy only reveals itself to to the protagonists at the very end of the film. And they're they're behind the curve the entire time. Yes. They're never seeing the big picture until until the end. And then, like you said, that's when the House committees and the, the congressional committees take over and and finish the process. But, you know. It's never, you never hear them suggested in the movie, like, oh, well, this is Nixon is plotting to, you know, a second term. This is all, you know, it was dirty tricks and yeah, it was politics and da da da. But the extent to which they were trying to manipulate the election just never, 
it's it never it's never fully revealed that picture of Jim Benyamin, which is one of the things I love about the book. And and the <laughs> the dominoes start the year he's elected. You know, like yeah. that's what is scarier. It's the dominoes start the year that he's elected. It's like every single effort that we're going to do. And, you know, if we're now sitting in 2020 towards an election, you can see that Trump has still been stoked and his entire administration have still been stoking the discontent and stoking the frustrations and stoking the, 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 the political, sorry, the cultural upheaval to your point to, to make it all about culture and less about facts, less about policy. Like I can't remember a time almost in any political thing where like, policy hasn't mattered. It hasn't mattered in my country. Like, you know, there's a lot of human rights policy and a lot of refugee policy and a lot of stuff that like, there are massive stories that are happening in this country right now. And they just go blip because people care about Corona. Like, and, and that's, you know, and, and as such we should, because it's the biggest focus that's in the world, but it's like policy is not the measure of success at the moment. It's crisis management. And when policy can be reflected upon, um, that's going to be the big thing. But even in America, like, that crisis management thing has been pushed to the side too. Like you said, it's all this cultural, you know, what will keep America great and all this strange stuff of like, look at what Joe Biden's America could look like. And it's like, the funniest thing to me about that is like, no, this is what your America looks like. Like you've been in charge for four years. This is what it looks like now. Like, what are we talking about? So yeah, it's look, I, I just want to say, um, this has been a great convo. Um, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can top it. And I, I want to say thank you again. A few people have listened to this, you know, lots of people listen to the show, but a, a few people have listened and listened to our episodes and thought um, you're an impossible act to follow. Um, but that is a, that is a, that is a great thing for me to talk to you and have your insights um, as part of this whole exercise. And I just appreciate you so much, James, for coming on so quickly. And thank you so much for your time again. It's, it's been amazing. Well, Blake, I always have a great time and I'm always happy to come back. That was the great James Oliphant. If you want to follow him, it's simply that, James Oliphant on Twitter, at James Oliphant, all one word, or you can go to Reuters and see his political coverage. Um, There's a link in the description for that. Guys, thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes. This has been the 97th episode. We're running up to our 100th episode, which is just incredible. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for sharing rating reviewing if you haven't done so that is the biggest influence you can have um, for the show is to share rate review let people know about it if you are enjoying the show if you have a little bit of extra scratch there's a donation link in the description and patreon forward slash one heat minute will give you a bonus episode every single week called rum and rant with some guests or just me um but Thank you so much for supporting all the shows increment vice miami nice one heat minute last 12 minutes the mohicans josie and the podcasts and so much more to come. Thanks for listening.